This is Teddy Maybank and you're listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Fulham Focus podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair. I'm feeling refreshed after the international break and hope you are too. I also hope the Fulham team are feeling ready to pick up some points at Bramall Lane this Sunday. It's pay-per-view, which is obviously a load of old nonsense, and I can confirm that you won't ever have to pay to listen to this old nonsense. We actually might end up having to pay you. Here to preview the match with the Blades are our two sharpest tools, Baldo and Will Oakley, plus Morgs joins me later on in the show as we look back over the career of Fulham legend Paul Pesky Solido. Let's get right on with it then. Fulham. Well, lads, this is the first show we've done since deadline day last week. What did you make of our business on deadline day? We brought in central defenders Joachim Anderson on loan from Leon and Tashin. Anyone want to help me out with the pronunciation of his surname? Adarabio? Uh, Ad- Ad- I think is. Adarabio. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think um, so. so. Well, better learn it because he's joined permanently from Man City. And then, of course, Ruben Loftus-Cheek joined on loan from Chelsea as well. Good evening as well from Tony and his cronies, Will. Yeah, I think it was good deadline day. Um, made up for, you know, maybe it being quite late, which obviously is something a lot of people did complain about, but... Overall, I think Anderson is a great sign-in, albeit on loan, but I think he can definitely help us out this season. Uh, you know, Leon saw something in him, in the fact they bought him for €24 million, Euros, I think it was. Obviously, he hasn't been great, um, well, last season for them. He hasn't really got into the team, but, you know, Leon are a good club and obviously they saw something in him. So I think this is a good loan move. And, you know, he seems happy to be at the club. He's spoken about it. it says that he likes the project that's happening. And hopefully he can help us this season. Uh, Adarabio, I think, is is brilliant. Uh, a bargain for how much we got him for. You, you know, so cheap. for I think it was £2 million when it, it gets like add-ons or added on and stuff like that. You know, he's still young. Um, I think I read something that Man City valued him at £8 million uh, because it was his last year of his contract. We got him a lot cheaper. I don't know how true that is. But, yeah, I think it's a great signing. Maybe not. Maybe he won't slot into the team straight away, but I think long term, and you know, we don't want to be negative. But if we do end up going down, he he'd be one of the players that would stay with us to try and help us get back up. Uh, Loftus Cheek on loan, I think it was quite surprising. Really, uh, we weren't really linked with him too much until the very last minute, and then you know we got him. And I know people are still saying that we need another attacker, but recently Loftus Cheek has played not as a striker, but kind of a centre forward. You know, just behind the striker, um, kind of where Josh King would play or was playing anyway uh, for Bournemouth, a bit in front of the 10, but a bit behind the nine. And yeah, I think that's a that's a good signing for us and he should help with the attack and a bit of the creativity maybe. Yeah, I, I was reading today about Loftus-Cheek that when uh, Antonio Conte was at Chelsea, he really saw him as, as a striker um, and he played up front a couple of times with Diego Costa. So that could be an option, playing off of Mitrovic, if um, if we chose to play him that way. Baldo, what did you make of our dealings on deadline day? It was a bit of a mixed bag, if I'm being honest, because we're putting a lot of faith in what we think these centre-backs will be able to produce. You know, with a guy like Loftus-Cheek, we know what he can do. We've seen what he does for Chelsea. You know, Tony Khan went probably a bit overboard when he called him a world-class talent. But if you look at what Loftus-Cheek has done in the Premier League, you can tell he is a very good player and he will be able to help us out. But with the likes of Anderson and Adarabio, pronounce it how you wish, um, I think there's a if we it's we're banking on them being as good as we think they can be. You know, not not many people would have heard of Anderson. A couple of people may have heard of. Um, I'm just going to call him Tosin from from now on. Um, from his Blackburn days and maybe if you pay attention to the Man City youth team and all that sort of stuff, there's a chance that they can produce something, but there's there's an awful lot of risk involved. For instance, if we'd have gone for someone like uh, Martin Hinteriger, for instance, uh, 
I, I, I know what he's like because I've seen, I've seen German football. I know what he's established as. I know what he can do, you know, regular for Austria in at international level. So there's a lot more to go off there. Whereas for the centre backs, it's more hope than expectation, if anything. Well, as we're recording this on Wednesday evening, there's still a couple of days left of the domestic transfer window, uh, which obviously closes on Friday. Depending on when you're listening to this, it may have already closed. Um, but as we're as as it's still open as we record it, lads, do you see us bringing in anybody else? I think we're still linked with Terence Congolo uh, and a striker as well. So, Will, you first. Do you think we'll bring anybody else in? I think Congolo might be a possibility, but. I don't really think we will bring in another forwards, although uh, I wouldn't mind one. I wouldn't mind one at all. I think Buendia would actually be quite good, who we've been linked with. And obviously we've been linked with Josh King and Ben Rama a lot, but they look to be going to West Ham or Palace or wherever. Um, but I don't... The problem is, I think we've got 29 players right now. Um, obviously, some players might still go out on loan, but you have to remember that they can only go on loan to championship clubs. I know for a fact that Seri isn't going to want to go to a championship club. McDonald's and Johansson maybe a doy as well. That narrows it down to 26. And if we sign someone else, that brings it back up. We can only have 25 players to submit. Uh, so I think we should only sign one more maximum if that, you know, we don't want to sign too many players and end up having to send some out on loan. I think we just need to kind of keep the squad we have now. If anyone comes in, I think it will probably be Congolo. Yeah, I think Friday and you know, the days leading up to it is going to be days of you know more outgoings than it will be incomings. If we are going to get anything, I, now I read today, again, as we record earlier today, Congolo was set for a medical. So again, depending on when you listen to this, he may have signed. I think that's probably going to come through the door. Then it's really just can we get another backup forward, even though you mentioned about Loftus-Cheek playing off, you know, potentially off Mitrovic, I think there will still be one more forward signing coming in. I don't I don't quite know who, but I think I think we'll be able to get one through the door. And then it is literally just a case of how many people can we get rid of. You know, it may be it may be like five or six, maybe even seven at the, come the end of the day. I think there's this course to be optimistic anyway with the business that we have done. We cried out for for some centre halves. We got a couple as you say, Baldo, the, the proof will be in the pudding as to whether they're up to it at this level or not. But at the moment, let's um, let's keep an open mind and hope for the best. Um, it's back to business on Sunday. Will, you're going to be paying to view the game with Sheffield United Sunday lunchtime? Um, not me, my dad. But... <laughs> Good old dad. <laughs> yes, I will be. I will be watching it. Yeah. Uh, look, it, it's, it is expensive. I mean, we all know that. Um, £15 per match is a lot, especially for the lower teams like us, like West Brom, like Sheffield United, uh, Burnley, you know, we're going to have less games on TV. Um, Are we though? Are and we? It is... Sky, Sky and BT could look at this and think, oh, it's Liverpool-Manchester United this weekend. Let's not put that on live TV. Let's see how much money we can get out of them. Who knows that's a that's a bold call if you think they're going to go that far. It is, I, it is. I, I like I your think... thinking, but that's a bold call. Yeah, the thing, I just don't think, I think it's only going to be the fans of those clubs that are going to play it, pay it. Even something with like Liverpool, Man United or Man City, whatever. I don't think I'd pay for that, even though it's a massive game. I just watch it because I've got the Sky Sports subscription, you know. I wouldn't pay £15 just to watch that one match. I'd pay it to watch Fulham, but um, not, not other clubs. It's expensive and it's going to rack up, but at the end of the day, it is cheaper than a match ticket. Obviously, different because you're not going to the stadium, but that's just how it is now. It's all changed. We would be going to these matches anyway, and unfortunately, we can't this time. So, you know, we've just got to either pay it or don't. That's how it is. All right. So you're going to have it on in your house. I'll definitely have it on in my house, even though I'm I'm so against it. But I don't want to not watch my team. And you know, football being on and Fulham playing and nobody watching it. What's the point? There's absolutely no point. So I know there's going to probably be illegal streams out there and, and whatnot, but you know, I'd, I'd rather not have it buffering. I'd rather just be able to watch it and, and not have to worry about it. Baldo, what's going to be yeah, happening I'm in your a, house? I, 
Yeah, yeah, I'm in a I'm in a similar vein. I, I'm going to be buying it, even though I'm I'm very much I'm I'm against the idea, but I'm not going to be one of these people that can, you know calls for a boycott of it because I'm going to be watching it. It'd be like turning up to a pizza rally uh, in the sausage in the sausage roll. So that's that's certainly not going to that's certainly not going to be me. We'll. I'll probably do it this one time, but further down the line as the games keep coming and keep coming, because we've got two other games this month, which is why people say it's £45 a month to watch Fulham. Now, further down the line, when we play the likes of Man City and Liverpool, chances are those might already be on TV because of the you know, the draw factor of the other teams. But it is going to be something that, we, that I look at a sort of game-by-game basis, personally. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good way to look at it. All right, well, we'll look ahead to the game in a bit more detail in a little while. But first of all, let's go over to a chat I had earlier this week with Morgs, Morgan Cowton, about a Fulham legend, Paul Pesky Solido. Fulham. Right, I've got Morgs with me to talk about another Fulham legend. This week, it's Canadian international Paul Pesky Solido. Morgs, how are you doing, mate? Were you a Pesh fan? I was a massive Pesh fan. Uh, was, yeah, so this was the era when my memory kind of goes back to after the uh, Mickey Adams promotion season stuff. So uh, I was, when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, I loved him. I'll talk about him. Yeah, nice one. Golden era. Well, having gained an unexpected promotion from the basement division on a shoestring budget in 1997 under the guidance of Fulham legend Mickey Adams, the club was purchased by Mohamed Al-Fayed that summer and the fortunes of Fulham Football Club were about to change. Mickey made a handful of signings in the summer, but early results were mixed at best. Mickey was sacked, um, immediately replaced by Ray Wilkins with Kevin Keegan, joining initially as Chief Operating Officer that September. The spending habits of the club were then blown out of the water as our transfer record was broken again and again. But Paul Pesky Solido signed in October for a fee of £1.1 where he became the first ever £1 million player in the third tier of English football. He, of course, went on to score on his debut against Northampton. Morgs, what are your memories of that time and Fulham signing such an exciting player after years of making do, basically, when there was no money in the coffers? Well, it was that time where it was just so interesting seeing these players come in for money because when I first started going, it was 95, 96. And you've got a few free transfers come in, a couple of loan players and stuff, but you know, then we were spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds on players, which obviously seems nothing these days. But uh, I think the when Andre Renzi signed, and that was uh, one of those that I heard on Club Call first. <laughs> I rang out Club Call, spent like a fiver finding out that we were signing the South African goalkeeper, uh, and uh, that was deemed exciting. And obviously, Paul Moody came in for another couple hundred grand, and you know, around this thing, it's like this, this is big money being spent. But then I think Mickey himself was, he admits that the amount of money, I think he was given like a 10 million pound budget, which I think he just basically said it scared the shit out of him, which understandable if you've been used to sort of, you know, working on that shoestring. And then you're given this, it's like, what do I do with it? You know, this is like, you know, winning the lottery and you're like looking around going, uh, what am I going to spend this on? But I think the challenge that he faced was a very difficult one. It was, you know, but he, uh, when, you know, when he did step aside, uh, with him, obviously forced aside, and then we started seeing even bigger money being spent. Uh, Ian Selly was uh, came in for half a million, and the poor guy only managed to play three games, I think, didn't he, before he snapped his leg. Then, uh, yeah, and then Pest coming in for the big money, and uh, I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. But I, I remember reading it because it was in. It was in a newspaper that was at, I saw it read at school, and it was like you know it took up a small portion in the bottom corner. Just said like Fulham sign West Bromwich uh, Albion player Paul Pesky Solano for one point one million. I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. That's that's quite exciting. I like that. It was a lot of money back then as well. You know, you you wouldn't bat an eyelid at a, a one million pound player these days, would you? You'd well, you would because it'd be too cheap. You'd be like, why the exactly. hell have we signed him? <laughs> But different times back then, and and it was an amazing signing, considering that he was coming from West Brom, who were playing in the division above at the time. And and his, his best attributes were his pace, low central gravity, and his movement, which really set him apart, particularly at that level. I remember him scoring a couple of goals against Gillingham, for example, at the Cottage in a live game on a Friday night. I think we won it 3-0. 
And the last goal that he got, his celebration for, for that goal was just to casually dust his boots off in front of the Gillingham fans, much to their disgust. What were your memories of how quick he was, particularly at that level? Well, as a you know, another member of the uh, low centre of gravity club, I could have you know, I appreciated the uh, you know how quick he was, and I was like, well, you know, maybe I'm that quick, and uh, it turns out I wasn't. Um, but I think you you looked at a player like that who was, you know, he played Division One football, which I guess at that time was exponentially better than we'd seen for the previous few years. And you could tell he was just a much better player and speed, you know, overall fitness was something that really set him apart from these cumbersome defenders in Division Two. So watching him there, it was like, OK, this is uh, this is something very different from the days of uh, Mickey Conroy and um, Lee Barkers, maybe or something like that, you know, that we were seeing in the years that, before. That's the, that's the point, though. You make a good point there because... We'd only, we were only a couple of months out of the basement division. We just got promoted, so we were used to seeing some, some real dross at that level, really. Um, and we just came on very, very quickly. And Pesh coming in, having previously you know, seen no pace at all in, um, in what is now League Two, um, he, he, just, he just... I remember, I remember seeing him go the first time, and he, he just went past somebody. I thought, bloody hell, he's quick. And I, just, I hadn't seen anything like that before at Fulham. Well, I mean... As well as the fact that he was playing alongside Paul Moody to start with. <laughs> it's just like they couldn't have two completely different players, which I think is great. You know, you know it's great when you have two uh, uh, opposites up front. Uh, but looking at the complete difference between them, I think Paul Moody, if he tried to sort of do, you know, a 5K, he'd be still going. Now, having started back in 1997. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. But that, it did work, though, didn't it? It was the classic big man, little man up front. Yeah. And, um, you know, aerial balls, Moody would knock them down and Pesh would just feed off of him. Yeah, it's perfect. And I think, you know, you don't get that as much these days, obviously, when you're only paying one up front. But that classic, I don't know, they, you know, by the time, uh, you know, around then, well, I guess we were playing 4-4-2 back then because most people were, that, you know, it was just that formation that worked, having, you know, little and large up front. You didn't need pace from one of the, from the big guy. Just needed the uh, right. the smaller guy to be quick. Yeah, very much so. Well, Pesh previously played for Birmingham, where he met his wife Karen Brady, who was then managing director of the Blues. Um, at the time, it was the the perfect stick for the opposition fans to beat him with. He he got a lot of abuse about being married to Karen, but he answered that abuse with thirteen goals in thirty seven games in his first season, and he was also given the Player of the Season award that year as well. It fired the whites of the playoffs, where we were, of course, beaten by Grimsby Town in the semi-final. Paul Moody was sent off in the first leg at Craven Cottage, and then Pesh was sent off in the second leg up at Blundell Park. What were your memories of those games? I think it was a bit, I mean, obviously a long time ago, but at the time it was all a bit strange, because, see, Ray Wilkins had been sacked just before, and it felt... It felt sort of uh, that it was obvious that we were going to lose that game because it didn't feel like there was any, the ship wasn't steadied at all by that point. And Keegan coming in felt like a much, you know, much more of an interim, uh, you know, role than it turned out to be. And it, it all felt very disjointed. And I think having players sent off in both games kind of perfectly summed up how it felt at that time. And we'd only just snuck into, well, I think we just snuck into the playoffs that season. But we hadn't done it impressively considering how much we'd spent compared to all the other teams. So I think we probably deserved to lose that game because obviously we just weren't the team that the money that we were spending and, you know, all the the glamour in, you know, speech marks uh, set us out to be. But... It did set the tone. I think if we'd gone up to the uh, gone up to Division One that season, maybe it would have been you know a step too far. But it gave us that opportunity to then build on the squad that we had, and obviously Keegan coming in and doing what he did, it made for a very special season. So my memory is a bit hazy, but in hindsight, I think I'm very happy that we lost because it meant that we were able to then have the uh, brilliant season next year. Yeah, very true. But what about the tackle from Pesh that led to his red card? The knee height, double-footed... Absolute classic striker's tackle. 
uh, you know, you, you don't get quality like that anymore. You know, they're all they're all trained in other aspects of the game. You know, <laughs> it was just you look at it and go, OK, fair play. You have no idea how to tackle. But, uh... yeah, I'm just reading a quote here that, that Pesh gave back to the Fulham website a few years ago, where he said the tackle looked a lot worse than it was. I was never a dirty <laughs> player, which is fine. I don't think he was a dirty player. Um, but I don't think the tackle looked a lot worse than it was. I thought it looked as bad as it was. It was a horror yeah. tackle. He flew through the air. His studs, yeah. you know, you could see them sparkling in the floodlights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. Ah, oh, that was so frustrating that night. But yeah, he, he definitely deserved to go. Well, you've mentioned Kevin Keegan, and he came in as uh, as manager before the second leg. So Ray Wilkins was sacked after the the one all draw uh, with Grimsby in the semi final. Then we lost one 0 up in up the, up, the, up their place with Keegan in charge. But then he was in full charge for the next season. We ran away with the division with over 100 points. Pesh was in contention with the likes of Jeff Horsfield and Barry Hales for game time up front by then, but still managed to notch 10 goals in 40 games. Um, he also got the Player of the Season award that year as well, which I find bizarre. I, I don't remember that at all, but I've read up on it, and apparently that happened as well. Uh, even to the point where he, the players were giving him stick, saying that... Um, he was getting mad at the match when he wasn't even playing. So that, that sort of extent, but it, it was, it's weird. I, I don't remember. It I don't remember that either. Yeah. I also, no, I mean, your your point about um, Wilkins being sacked after the first leg. I thought he was sacked before the playoffs started. So, my me- yeah, my memory is definitely faded on that one. <laughs> it, it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Um, but we will come on to um, probably his his finest moment in a Fulham shirt, um, and that was the equaliser in the League Cup at Anfield, a goal for which, um, you know, he's, he's still spoken about now amongst all of us Fulham fans. Talk me through your memories of that wonder strike. Uh, well, I was I was there. I was I was there with my stepdad. And, you know, we were up in the uh, top tier of the Anfield Road stand. And you get excited. Back in that, those days, you got excited for League Cup games, especially when you were playing a Premier League team, especially when you were playing Liverpool. And just remember, obviously, you know, being one nil down and you think, oh, okay, you're going to end up getting on the other you know, wrong end of a ham- hammering at this point. And I just remember him getting the ball in that in the corner of, just outside the corner of the penalty area and just turning and going for it. And it took a second to work out that it had gone in. But it was like, at that point, it was like, you know, mayhem. Uh, but I just remember thinking that was an amazing goal and then needing to see it when I got back to London, you know, two in the morning, whatever it was. And I seem to remember people saying it was the best away goal they'd seen at Anfield and all that. And it's to say, yeah, okay, we lost 3-1, but, you know, we, you know, we won the moral victory in that one because of that goal. I think so, yeah. I mean, he's he's taken it on his right foot with his back to goal with the defender right up his backside, hasn't he? Creating a little bit of space by nudging it to one side and just wrapping his left foot around it. But he was way out, way out. And he just it looped up and over and into the top corner over Brad Friedel's head, right in front of the cop. Um, there were a good few thousand Fulham fans up there at the time as well. We travelled in good number back, back in those days because we were coming up through the leagues. And it was the first time I'd ever been to Anfield as well. And I never really expected us to win that game. Um, but it was worth the entrance fee alone just to see that goal. What a goal. And Pesh is also very quick to point out that it was no flu because he did it very shortly afterwards against Chesterfield at the Cottage as well. Do you remember that goal? Not quite as good, or the opposition isn't quite as good, but still a decent goal all the same. It was. And yeah, well, I remember, I think I was sitting in the Riverside stand back then and just watching, watching him do that. I'm like, I've seen that goal before. <laughs> well, actually, I was quite young. I was like, I've seen that goal before. <laughs> <laughs> Good grief, don't ever do that again. <laughs> well, as we're promoted to the second tier, opportunities for Pesh did become limited. Um, he's spoken actually to um, to Danny on fullandfocus.com about his poor relationship or lack of any sort of relationship with Jean Tigana and how he would have loved to have been a part of that team um, and how he would have loved to have played up front with Louis Sahar. But of course, we had Bowamore, say Barry Harris, and, and as I said, Louis Sahar that season. So he would have been way down the pecking order. So he did have a loan spell, firstly at QPR. Um, I'm pretty sure he scored on his debut quite early in that game as well. Um, then he had further loan spells this weekend's opponents, Sheffield United, and then Norwich City, before signing for the Blades on a permanent deal, where he went on to play 97 games and scoring 22 goals. 
The most memorable moment of his time at Sheffield United, though, has got to be the FA Cup game against Arsenal, where David Seaman made what was quite possibly the greatest save of all time. You must have seen it before, right? Yeah, over and over. And yeah. every time, I still don't know how he saved it. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate for Pesk as well, because, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's not a bad return, you know, 22-97. Um, hmm. But he, uh, you know, being best known for a goal that you didn't score, I know it, it came at him quite quickly and he's, he's tried to get his head around it and direct it towards goal. And he's any other goalkeeper, that's a goal without a shadow yeah. of a doubt. But Seaman, he's, his arm was at a right angle to his body behind him and he somehow managed to scoop it back out. Unbelievable save. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's one of those you look at, you see a few saves, and it's going to be it, you know, in random leagues or you know peter schmeichel or something like that and you go okay how the hell did you save that that is the one where you literally go how the hell did you save that and i think you know it's all credit to david seaman he was amazing as a keeper but he uh he said you know if it had been a lob it probably would have gone over his head but because it was a point blank (laughs) yeah it was just like you know managed to claw it out so yeah fair play to him Quality keeper, David Seaman. All right, well, let's come on back to Fulham then. What was your favourite Pesh goal? Um, you're going to say the Liverpool one, but can you think of any others? I'll put you right on the spot. The, the, re- the reason um, I was going to say the Liverpool goal is because it is, uh, you know, I, I when I joined Fulham Focus, Danny asked me, what's your favourite Fulham goal? That uh, said, no. I was like, it's the Pesh goal because mm. I absolutely loved it. And it was like, so, I mean, obviously that is my uh, you know favourite Pesh goal, but... Mm. I'm then struggling to think outside of the Chesterfield game of a lot of the other ones because my mind has gone absolutely blank. But, you know, I'll no, go for the Chesterfield that's, one. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's absolutely fair enough. I'm going to pick I'm, I'm going to pick three goals, actually. Um, he scored a hat-trick um, in Easter 1998, I think, against Carlisle. Obviously, Carlisle, our old en- enemy from um, when we were coming up through the, the, the previous promotion season. And um, and he got a hat trick over Easter. His first one, he went round the keeper at pace, kept his kept his balance, and scooped into the goal. The second one was a, a classic close range finish from a Paul Moody knockdown. And then the third one, just after half time, he threw on goal, and he's just dinked it over the, the keeper's head. Lovely little finish for his hat trick. And I, I love those goals. And I, I always love seeing a hat trick. We don't we don't see enough of them. Um, we went on to win that game five 0 as well. Paul Moody rattled home a penalty. Uh, probably one of the one of the best penalty takers we've ever had, just because he made sure that ball was going in the goal and it was going to take the goalkeeper in with it as well. Well, that we're going to save it for the Paul Moody chat further down the line, but he was a uh, no-nonsense striker and you, can yeah. just, you can't imagine him ever trying to penenka or anything like that. No, no, no absolutely no chance with Moody's, no. Um, and then the fifth goal that day was scored by Tony Thorpe. I'd forgotten we even had him. He was there I liked so him. briefly. Yeah, I, I, he was one of those players that I thought I really wanted him to do better I think he did yeah. all right and then he ended up going off back to Luton didn't he or something like that or, yeah we, we sent him back yeah but I think we made a couple of grand profit but anyway um but anyway so I think that game was on the Saturday um and then on the Monday we played away at Burnley and I traveled up to uh, to Burnley on the Sunday night stopped at um Hilton Park services on on the M6 um just just for something to eat Walked in there and Tony Thorpe, Steve Hayward and Pesh were all sat there waiting to be picked up by the team bus. I went over, I shook all their hands and I said, oh, Pesh, amazing hat to you. He's like, thanks very much. And I said to Tony Thorpe, your goal was great as well. And he couldn't have given a shit. <laughs> Probably forgot he even scored. Yeah, yeah, he, could, he yeah. couldn't have given a shit. He, he did not want to engage whatsoever. So, yeah, whatever. Oh, well, never mind. Um, anyway, so, yeah, that, that was my, uh, they were my, my three favourite goals, aside from the Liverpool one as well, because like you, it's probably one of the one of the best goals I've ever seen. All right, let's come on to uh, racing Pesci's time at Fulham. Then you've got to rate his career out of ten. Uh, I am well you, for two player of the seasons, maybe one slightly questionable. You've got to give him a few points. Uh, obviously, that goal. I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him a seven and a half. I think you know he didn't set the world alight. But he was that first player that made us realise that we were, you know, kind of a cut above the rest in terms of spending power and, you know, the players that we were bringing in in that league. And I think, you know, that gives him, you know, a little bit of an aura 
around the club around that time. Um, he, you know, he tailed off towards the end, as players sometimes do. Other players came in who were essentially better than him. So I think, uh, you know, whilst I really liked him as a player, um, you know, he's not one of the all-time greats, but he he was a very good player. And so I think I think seven and a half's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to go a solid seven. Um, I, was, I was a big fan of his. And like you say, he, he was the first one. But the, the turnover of players back then was, was very high. And just when you thought you'd, you'd found a really good player, as, as we had in him, then the club kind of moved so quickly that it was time to move him on before, you know, before he, I mean, I'm not going to say before he established himself in the team, because obviously he was an established player, but there were just other other players that were quickly coming in, like Barry Hales and Jeff Horsfield, who quickly replaced him. And he, all of a sudden, our, our most expensive player at one time finds himself on the bench. It's just, yeah, crazy times. Also, special mention to the, to the kits back then as well, because I, I really liked the um, the white shirt with the black kind of... Um, the Demon Internet panel. one. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the black panel, which we tried to recreate a couple of years ago when we got relegated from the Premier League. Um, and also the away kit as well. We had a brilliant away kit, um, which was uh, red and black hoops with the GMB. That's the one, yeah, I, I remember it. that, because that was the one we played against Spurs in the Cup. Uh, that's uh, right, right, yeah. And, and Margate. Obviously, uh, I was thinking Margate earlier. Yeah, as I was well. thinking Margate. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe we wore it at Lee RMI as well. <laughs> he scored a very good goal. At, uh, no, 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 we didn't actually. I think we played in it. That was the yellow. Kit. No, because they because uh, um, they they wore red or something like that. I think. Um, yeah. Because they. Yeah, but, but yeah, that was definitely in the yellow kit. But he scored a very good goal against Lee RMI, although they they weren't on league. But yeah, so solid solid seven for me for Pesh as well. Um, yeah, one of my favourite players of, of that time for sure. And I think, you know, he's one of those players that we do look back on very fondly. I mean, yes, he went to QPR, but we didn't, didn't begrudge him a move to QPR because at the end of the day, he wasn't getting game time and he lived in the area. It's just like, OK, yeah, go for it. Go and, you know, play well there. <laughs> so we, yeah. we would never look at him. A, a, there are players that come back and they get booed by, mm. you know, by fans and whatnot. You would never boo Pesk because no. he was such a, you know, he was quite a lovable character as well. Yeah. yeah, no, no one's ever met a nasty Canadian. <laughs> That's like, no. No, and he puts no. up with Karen Brady. I mean, you know, <laughs> he must be all forgiving, uh, you know, and he's got the patience of an absolute saint, I imagine. Well, I remember um, we played West Brom in the cup. It was the game we we it was the lime green kit game when oh. Stan Collymore yeah when Stan Collymore got the second goal. So Stan Collymore came on in the second half and just got resoundingly booed because of his obvious connections with with Aston Villa. But Pesh got the first goal that night, and I'm pretty sure the West Brom fans were booing him as well. So we ran off and celebrated that goal because <laughs> we signed him from West Brom. Um, so there, I don't know. There, there didn't seem to be an awful lot of love lost there, but. Um, yeah, whenever he comes back, which he has been back to Fulham uh, to do the half-time way thing and maybe yeah. did he get his forever Fulham award maybe as well, I'm not sure. Um, but he's, he's always had a very good reception from Fulham fans and he always will as well, rightly so. But a, but a quick question, I mean, you say he got booed by the West Brom fans. Did he move because he wasn't getting game time at West Brom or did he just go for the money? I don't know. I, I, I think he said yeah. that um, he, he was sold the, the three-year dream to get to the Premier League by Kevin Keegan. Um, not not the money as such. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure how much you know. It's, money maybe that's why. He, maybe that's why he got booed. Anyway. Maybe he wasn't quite as lovable when. The, yeah. In that yeah sense. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was just because he left to go to a team in, in a league below. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> glad he did. All right, mate, let's leave it there. Um, you can read more about Pesh and Danny's interview, as I mentioned. Um, he did it a couple of years ago. You can either visit fullandfocus.com and trawl through the archives or just Google Paul Pesky Salido. Full and focus. Um, that's all for now, so I'll pass back to the main show. Fulham. Right, well, it's time to look at the Sheffield United stats, as lovingly prepared, as always, by our legendary Stato, Matt Arter. I'm going to look at our record against Sheffield United. Um, Fulham have had 22 wins against Sheffield United over the years. We've drawn 15, but Sheffield United are slightly ahead with 30 wins against us. Um, we haven't played Sheffield United in the Premier League since the 2006-2007 season. We won the home game 1-0 with a goal from a Jimmy Bullard free kick. Um, incredibly, Sheffield United do still have a player on their books who played that day in Phil Jagielka, um, although he has spent a vast amount of the time in between playing at Everton. 
Um, we lost the away game 2-0, I remember, because I went to that midweek 2-0 and we didn't bother turning up at all to that. Um, we haven't got a great record at Bramall Lane, but I, I suspect we'll be coming on to that um, in a minute. More recently, our last five games against them have produced a mixed bag of results. We've had three wins, one draw and one loss. The one defeat was that awful FA Cup replay at the Cottage when we got relegated from the Premier League in 2014 when Sheffield United were in League One. Players that featured for Fulham that day were Josh Parsley, uh, Tankovic and, of course, super Scotty Parker. Uh, our most recent home game against them was a 3-0 win in March 2018 and that was match 14 of our 23-game unbeaten run against them where we had two goals from Mitrovic and one from Tom Kearney that night. The last away game was that incredible 5-4 win at, um, at Bramall Lane when Ryan Sessegnon got a hat-trick. Um, we've only lost three home games against them in the last 15 home meetings, dating back to March 1968, although we are away from home this time, of course. Will, over to you. Yeah, so we all know that Sheffield United had a brilliant season last season. Admittedly, they kind of dropped off um, after lockdown. But, you know, nineteen twenty, it was brilliant for them. They were tipped uh, to go down after finishing second just behind Norwich. Obviously, Norwich did end up going down in the end. Uh, they had the likes of Ollie Norwood, who obviously uh, played for Fulham, that play or slide tackle or block, whatever you want to call it, which is brilliant. And they also had players like John Lundstram and John Egan, who were all experienced championship players, but never really stepped up to the Premier League. So, you know, it's interesting. It's what a lot of clubs have started doing recently, you know, building from the championship and then, you know, giving them Prem experience. Uh, all of their signings came from the championship. Uh, one of their best bits was re-signing goalkeeper Dean Henderson uh, from Man United on loan. You know, he was brilliant last season. I remember watching his games. He kept so many clean sheets. And they were one of those teams that, although he didn't have the most glamorous wins, they always just won by, you know, one goal or two goal, not by a lot. Uh, they had a mid-table start to the season, collecting 13 points from their first 10 games. And their form then improved as they only lost two games between October and December. By the halfway point, they were sitting seventh on 29 points and they were sitting above teams that should be in the top six, like United, Arsenal. Uh, and they you know, they were in a Euro European spot. They were looking for that European spot. Obviously, in the end, uh, they ended up finishing ninth, which is still amazing, but they did just drop off after lockdown a bit. I remember they lost to Newcastle, I think it was 3-0, and they were absolute shambles there. And it does seem that this season, they might have been found out a bit. Uh, they've lo they lost their last three games of last season and the first four of this season, which means they haven't picked up any points in the last seven games uh, and are, of course, on zero points, same as us this season. But, you know, finishing ninth in the Prem for a just promoted club is absolutely brilliant. They won 14 games last season. Only four of them came away. Uh, however, they lost the same amount of home games than they did away games, both six, which was nine out of nine out of their 19 away games were draws. So, like I said, a lot of them were nil-nils, I think, you know, quite close games. And, you know, they're a great defensive side. They play five at the back. And they play that kind of overlapping centre-back thing, which I think, again, we might talk about later. But it's really interesting how they play. and But that's why people think they might get found out this season, because it takes one season for someone like bigger clubs to find out your tactic. And hopefully we can end up exploiting that. Right. And I've been tasked with taking a look at the new signings. And if I'm being honest, I, I've been really impressed with what Sheffield United have done. First up in goal, uh, obviously, as Will mentioned there, Dean Henson had an excellent year last year and they've replaced him with Aaron Ramsdale from Bournemouth in an £18.5 million move. Um, he's so far conceded six goals in the first four games, which isn't too bad when you consider you know, the size of the team Sheffield United are. But the bigger problem for them, however, is they've only scored once in those four games. So there's only so much that he can do in that sense. Um, in defence, they've got Max Lowe and Jaden Bogle, who are signed from Derby County and a double transfer. Uh, young fullbacks who had good seasons with the Rams, but have been brought into growing competition to current fullbacks with the likes of George Baldock and Ender Stevens, um, playing uh, plenty of times last season. You know, it was a very solid 
uh, Sheffield United team, similar to the Fulham side of eight of 2008-9. They very rarely named an, un- an unchanged back line. So it's very consistent there. Um, however, both of them are yet to appear. This is Bogle and Lowe, yet to appear in the Premier League this season. Up front, they've got Oliver Burke, who's a Scottish striker. They signed from West Brom, with Callum Robinson going the other way. Uh, in a bit of a swap deal. Oliver Burke was once sort of touted as one of the you know, hot prospects in British football, but his career hasn't quite fallen out that way. He's 23 now and has a varied career with spells at RB Leipzig, Celtic and Alaves in Spain. Uh, arguably the biggest move of their transfer was uh, Rian Brewster, who signed a £23.5 million pound move, although Liverpool do have a buyback clause. If anyone listened to the um, season, you know, restart preview show that me and Danny and J-Mag did will know that I was very impressed with what Reen Brewster was able to bring to the team because he scored 10 goals in 20 games for Swansea last year as they very narrowly missed out on the playoff finals against Hounslow FC. Uh, this is going to be his first time stepping into the Premier League and talks have been that he's going to make his debut against us on on the weekend, so obviously a big occasion for him. And last but not least, Ethan Abadou, who I'm not going to talk about because Frenchie doesn't like me talking about him because he's Welsh. So I'm just going to skip past him, uh, even though I think he's a great player. Uh, key players for Sheffield United are Chris Basham, John Egan and Jack O'Connor. Again, going back to last season, that consistent back five, back three that they had. Uh, the centre-back trio played the majority of the games last season and were the core back uh, backbone that made United such a tough team to break down. Uh, overall, they contributed two assists and two goals between the three of them. But Sheffield United weren't exactly a team known for scoring goals last season. I think they only got 39, something along those lines, so just over a goal a game. And in midfield, the guys who control the play, John Fleck, John Lundstrom and Oliver Norwood, familiar name there. Just like the defence, these three made up the core of the midfield. All played more than 30 games with Sander Burge coming in January to assist with squad rotation. Uh, Fleck and Lundstrom both scored five goals each and only striker Ollie McBurney and Lise Mousset scored more than them with just six goals, with just six goals each. Uh, ending with a familiar name, Oliver Norwood. Uh, he played uh, every game for them. Didn't contribute much going forward, uh, only getting one goal and one assist, but was very instrumental in the way they played by producing uh, at least one key pass per game and was key to their defensive game with 1.7 tackles per game. You know, the only reason that I asked you to do the uh, the, the players for Sheffield United was so that you could talk about Ethan Ampadu. Yeah, but I know you don't like me talking about him. So no, no, no. <laughs> no. Uh, what we what we actually said before was, if we talk about players that are worthy of being signed on the show that we did before, don't bang on about all the Welsh ones and try and bring the bloody Welsh national team to Fulham. That was all. But you know, talk about Ethan Ampadu all you like. Um, I, I, he's he's a he's a fantastic player. I think he's, I think he's going to get rather shafted this season playing for Sheffield United because I think it was a bad move for him because I don't think he's going to play much, which is the problem that he had uh, you know, last couple of years at RB Leipzig and Chelsea in subsequent. I would have loved to have signed him, signed him, play that uh, defensive midfield role similar to Kevin McDonald in the promotion year, sort of in front of the back four, but then drifting into a back three. Do you want me to shut up now? Because I know what you're, I know what you're thinking about. Um, yeah, he would he would have been great for us playing defensive midfield, but obviously things weren't uh, didn't come to fruition. And oh well, I'm sure we'll get him, I'm sure we'll get him later in the future. Well, for those of you that don't know, Baldo is a, a staunch Welshman who uh, who goes to watch Wales, so he's he's seen the guy play a lot, so so he knows. Um, let's hope he has an absolutely appalling game on on Sunday. Um, Sheffield United manager Chris Wilder is something of a maverick with his overlapping centre-backs, as Will alluded to earlier on, which he's used at Sheffield United since their League One days. Will, how do we beat Sheffield United and how will we line up to do it? Honestly, I, I think it's a massive sort of preparation game. Um, I think it's something that their tactics are really out there. You know, overlapping centre-backs, that's, well, I mean, as far as I know, that's never been heard of before kind of Chris Wilder implemented it. It's it's crazy. A centre-back ending up at, you know, left wing or right wing. <laughs> I, I don't know how it works, but, you know, it, it, it worked for them last season and that's fair enough. But clearly this season, it, it isn't going too well. I mean, four games and zero points so far this season, like I said earlier, maybe teams have found them out. And, you know, having a whole season in the Premier League uh, to analyse them, it's it probably is that the 
big managers have have worked it out and hopefully Scott Parker can see what teams do to beat them. Yeah, it's gonna be a bit it's gonna be a bit tricky on the surface of it, but thankfully I was looking um uh, because I uh, cover a bit, a little bit of Leeds United in my day-to-day work, I was having to look at this to come across this preview that they did for the game uh, they played before the international break, and it's quite easy when you look at it. Um, the example of the tactic at its most direct is brutally effective. It basically it's designed to overload the opposition in wide areas to create openings elsewhere, so, so moves through the middle. So if they want to overload the wide areas, then really it's just a case of let's match them for that. So I know we're going to get on to team selection. Personally, I think who's going to be defensive-minded from the forwards, basically, to drag back and help out. We know that Anthony Knockhart is someone who who likes to do the defensive work on the right-hand side. And then if you have, for example, Anthony Robinson and Joe Bryan on the left-hand side, one of them playing one of them playing as a winger, you can work it out with yourselves who you want it to be, and sort of counteract them by... You know, making sure we aren't outnumbered out wide. I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. And then if you have you know, a strong core of you know, players in front of the back four in the middle of the park, like a Harrison Reed, who we may be back, we don't know, or uh, Mario Lumina or Anguissa or, you know, any number of players that we have, then we should be able to stop them being, you know, create, stop them creating their chances. And as a result, we may not be able to concede four goals as we have been doing although we didn't do it against Wolves we're slightly getting better but still a lot of work to do so hopefully that's the way that we approach it you mentioned Anthony Knockhart then is he still going to be here for the game seeing as he's been linked with moves to Cardiff and Nottingham Forest before Friday's domestic deadline yeah that's the only problem with it is he's not going to he's not going to be playing um that's the yeah. only that's that's the only minor flaw in the problem but other than <laughs> that but other than that, just toss just toss the job out to whoever the other right winger is going to be. It's simple enough. All right, Will. What's the lineup going to be then? What's your lineup prediction? Well, Rodak has had a brilliant international break, but I still think Ariola will get that spot. Uh, like I've said a few times, I feel really sorry for Rodak, but Ariola has come in and you know he's brilliant against Wolves. So for me, Ariola's got a starting goal. I think I kind of agree with uh, what. Baldwin was saying about uh, Robinson and Brian. I thought he worked really well. Obviously, a lot of people want to see Lookman as well. So, but for me, I think keep kind of Robinson as the left back or left centre back, Brian as the left winger or left wing back, whatever you want to call it. Uh, centre back wise, I think Anderson will come in straight away. And I think he might play alongside Ream, to be honest. Uh, I don't know why. I just have a feeling that. Ream will keep his spot. He did quite well against Wolves, I thought, you know, the amount of blocks he was putting in. And yeah, I, I thought he was pretty good. So I can see Ream and Anderson playing at centre-back together. Right-back, uh, I don't know about Tete, really, if he's back or not. I don't think he will start because we haven't really heard much. So I think Aina will probably play again. And then uh, maybe Tete come on off the bench if he's in the squad. If not, then, you know, he won't. Midfield-wise, I'd keep the same as uh, as before with Kearney and Anguissa. I thought they were both really good. This is assuming that Reed and Lamina are still injured. But to be honest, I think you've got to ease them into the squad a bit slower, considering how well Kearney and Anguissa did. I'd keep them two in. And then uh, Mitrovic up front, uh, obviously. Uh, I don't think Knockart will play. I think he probably does suit a game like this, like you said. But... Yeah, I, I think for me, it'll probably be Cav, but I still think Lookman does deserve that chance. He just hasn't got it yet, especially with this game where I'm saying Brian should start on the left. But yeah, I, I don't know. We'll have to see. OK, interesting. Yeah, I've, I've got Ariola in goal and Tete at right back if he's fit. If not, then Aina. Um, Anderson makes his debut for me as well with Robinson at left back and I play Anderson alongside Michael Hector I think the longer you leave Michael Hector out the it's not going to do him any good you need to get him back into the team and try and get his confidence back otherwise it will just be shot to pieces and, and then he'll be finished at the club potentially so get him back into the side he's, he's still one of our best defenders as far as I know obviously I haven't seen the, the new two guys yet um, but yeah Hector starts um, Two in front of the back four for me will be Anguissa and Harrison Reed if he's fit. If not, I might play Josh Onoma as well. Um, then I've got Cavalero playing on the right. 
with Ruben Loftus-Cheek just in the middle and pushing up alongside Mitrovic. And then it was a toss-up between uh, Lutman and Joe Bryan, but after Baldo's insight into why they play those overlapping centre-backs to try and try and flood the wings and get the ball out wide, then I think let's play Joe Bryan and be a bit more defensively minded. And then if things are going well, we get a few goals ahead, then you can bring Lutman on to finish him off as well. Um, so, yeah, that'll be what I do. How about you, Baldo? Uh, my team isn't really too dissimilar to yours. I'd go for Ariola in goal as well. Tete or Aina, depending on uh, availability, at right back. I do think Hector uh, will start again. I've, it, the defence hasn't been great, but I do think Hector has still been the best, you know, best of a bad bunch at centre back. So I play him and, and I play Anderson as well. I think it's perfect time for him to play. Going along with you know, what I said earlier, it'll be a back four. So I'll go, I'll go for uh, Robinson. Robinson at left back, then again, again similar to you, Angis, Angisa and uh, Reed uh, in front of the back four. Uh, one wing, I th- I agree with Will. I think Lookman will get will get that start. I think we've been crying out for him. So Lookman on one wing, Loftus cheek through the middle, then Joe Bryan um, on the left on the left wing. You know, Brian Robinson, you can switch the two. They do the same job, and then Mitrovic up top. Uh, so yeah, pretty much a combination of both your teams. Um. Sheffield United won 10 home games last season, drew three and lost six. They also won four away games, finishing ninth. That being said, like us, they've lost all four of their games this season so far and have scored just one goal. Will, what's your score prediction for Sunday? Uh, I think 1-0, I'm going to say. I think we can keep a clean sheet if we play one of the new centre-backs. Like you say, Sheffield United haven't scored a lot Um which would be brilliant if they didn't do that against us. I, I can't see us scoring more than one, really. I, I mean, maybe, you know, this international break is going to do our team wonders, but it just seems that we do lack a bit of creativity. It just seems to be very you know, repetitive the whole way through. I think we'll score one, um, hopefully be comfortable with the ball, because I think Sheffield United are one of the teams that we probably can be comfortable with possession. Uh, I think it will be no, not dissimilar to a, to one of the championship games last season. So yeah, I, I'd say one nil. Good stuff. I think it's a completely Fulham thing to happen for Brewster to score on his debut against us. So I don't see us keeping a clean sheet. Um, and I think we might draw this game. I don't see us winning it. I just, I don't know why. I've just got that feeling in my gut that it'll be one all. So that's what I'm going for. How about you, Baldo? Uh, I'm going for a two-one victory. Actually, I, I'm. I don't have complete faith in the back four to to keep a clean sheet, even if it is against a, a bad, even if it is against a bad Sheffield United attack. I still don't have that full confidence. So I think we will concede one. But I do think the added attacking impotence of the likes of Lookman, who I think who I think will start, even if he comes off the bench. And Ruben Loftus Cheek and Alexander Mitrovic, I think we'll be able to get at least one, and then I'm going to push and say we're going to get a second as well. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say two one. Like the style, good stuff. All right, well that's your lot for this week. Baldo and Will, thanks for joining me, and also thanks to Morgs for indulging me in chatting about one of my old faves, Pesh. Jay Matt will be back on Monday morning, joined by your friend of mine, Matt Dom, with Will once again for a full debrief on Sunday's game. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. Have a great week and an even better weekend, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers.